Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I invite you to take your copies of the scripture with me and turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 22. This morning we will begin reading in verse 18. Exodus 22, beginning in verse 18. My in-laws are in town for the week, and shortly after I picked up my mother-in-law, from the airport, she asked me, what are you preaching on this week? And so I read her the first two verses. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. And she said, can't wait to see what you do with that. <laughs> Thankful for her confidence. <laughs> but how good... God's word is that wherever we are, it will tell us the truth, will tell us exactly what we need to hear, when we need to hear it, for our benefit and for his glory. And so I wonder, as we read these verses this morning, if we would thank God for his word. Thank God that his word reveals himself to us. And we need to see God clearer this morning. So I pray that that would happen as we read in Exodus 22 and 23. Would you stand with me as we read these verses together? Exodus 22, beginning in verse 18. Hear the word of the Lord. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn. And I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear. 
for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall not throw it to the dogs. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil. Nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, so that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. We pray, amen. You may be seated. You are the salt of the earth. These words were spoken by Jesus as he delivered what we call the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Have you ever eaten something or had a meal that was extremely salty? I remember going with my wife to a major restaurant chain for dinner. And everything that we ate seemed to be drenched in salt. That's all that we could taste. And we knew how salty it was because not only did it taste making us thirsty, I mean, we were downing our pop like mad. Pop is soda, if you don't know, or soda pop, or if you're from Texas, Coke. And we were having Dr. Pepper Coke, so. Maybe you've cooked something before and forgot to add a little bit of salt and the dish was bland. Maybe you've seen someone add so much salt to their plate that you wondered how they would be able to taste anything else but the salt that they were eating. Salt is a flavor enhancer. And most importantly, it's distinct. When you taste salt, 
you know it's salt. And this is at the heart of behind what Jesus is teaching in Matthew 5. You are the salt of the earth because you are distinct, because you are different from the world in which you live. When people hear you say that you are a Christian and then see the way that you live, they should say, that's a Christian. That's someone unique. There's something different about them. They stand out. And hear again what Jesus says to the people. You are the salt of the earth. He doesn't say, become the salt of the earth. He doesn't say, you might be the salt of the earth. He doesn't say, I hope you are the salt of the earth. He says, if you are following me, if you are following Christ, you are the salt of the earth. Your life is now lived in complete and utter devotion to him. It's not a nice suggestion. You live differently in this world because you are his. But then he gives a warning, doesn't he? But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Salt is salt, and the only thing it has going for it is its taste. Without its taste, salt is nothing. It's worthless. It's good for nothing. And Jesus gives this hypothetical scenario to drive home a point of warning to his hearers. You are salt. You are distinct. You are different. You have a different king. You have a different eternal destiny. You have a different set of values. You have a different purpose and meaning for your life, for why you live the way that you live. You have a life that's different than those that are of the world. If that is compromised, if that distinction is lost, if the lines become blurred between those who call themselves Christians and the unbelievers who live in the world, there is a major problem. If you don't live differently, if you don't make different choices, if you don't think and reason differently, if you don't have different affections and loves that are completely contrary to the system of this world, then Jesus says it's just like if salt would lose its saltiness, it would be good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. How Christians live matters. What we say, what we do, it matters and it has an effect on our own hearts and on our own lives. It has an effect on the church and it has an effect on the world in which we live. God has so designed and orchestrated our lives in such a way as to communicate to the world, something about Him by the way that we live our lives. It is not just what we say, it's how we live. We are a visible demonstration to the watching world, and it tells them something about God and about our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul says in a few of his letters about how Christians are to live. Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, Lord, 
urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Philippians 1.27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Colossians 2.6, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith. In 1 Thessalonians 4.1, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to live and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And this way of living is not something new for Christians after the cross. It has been prescribed for God's people from the very beginning. As God here in Exodus is communicating to His people in this section that we know to be the book of the covenant, they are supposed to live in relationship with God. They are supposed to live in relationship with one another. And the way that they are going to live is going to be based on who God is. God's nature, His attributes, serve to be the foundation of why they live the way that they do. Who God is serves as the basis for why we live and why we do what we do. If our understanding of God is skewed, if it is warped, if it is confused, or perhaps even worse, if we base the way that we live on a God of our own imagination, we will not live distinct lives. We will make excuses for why we live like the world lives. We will make compromises and let things slide. We will blur the lines of distinction. We will compromise the truth about who God is, and we will proclaim a lie to the watching world. And if we do not tell the world the truth about who God is, it will have destructive, devastating, eternal effects upon the souls of others. What the Lord does in our section of text here is this. He says, because I am this way, this is how you will live. He says, you are to reflect my nature. You are to reflect me. Like the moon reflects the glorious light of the sun, so we are to reflect the light and the glory of God to those who are around us. Do you know that the moon is not its own source of light? It only reflects the light of the sun. And how true with us. In and of ourselves, in and of yourself, you have no light to give anybody else. The only light that you have to give to someone else is the light of Jesus Christ shining in you and through you. So we come to focus on who God is and it speaks to how we live. And so what does the Lord focus on then in these verses? Five ways we are to live based upon who He is. Number one, you can follow along in your bulletin if that's helpful. Number one, worship God alone because He is worthy. Worship God alone because He is worthy.
we're honest, these first few verses, particularly 18, 19, you might be tempted to skip over them. I mean, when was the last time you ran into a sorceress? But we start here with the most foundational truth we need for living as salt in this world. There must be a difference in our worship and who we worship. Everyone is a worshiper. All people worship someone or something. It's built into us as those who have been created and designed by God. He has created us to be worship beings, and so we will worship. We have to worship. The whole basis for the nation of Israel was was that they worshiped Yahweh alone. All the surrounding nations were polytheists. They all worshiped many gods. Israel was distinct by the declaration in Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And if this was threatened... All the people and their way of life was threatened. And so these commands could seem very harsh to us. Do not permit a sorceress to live? Who was a sorceress? A sorceress was one who practiced black magic. She practiced in the occult. This all revolved around thinking that you could control either the gods or the gods to get what you want. So why would they do this? Why would there be sorcerers or a sorceress? Because they believed that they could manipulate God. They sought to manipulate the living and the dead. And they tried to show their strength through demonic means. Sorcery involves the use of spiritual forces, real or imaginary, to assist human beings to fulfill their own desires, and it does this. It challenges the very sovereignty of God. This was not worshiping God. This is worshiping self. Is that ever a problem among people today? That they would want to use God to get what they want, that they would try to manipulate God in order to fulfill their own selfish ambitions and selfish gains. I think one common way that we see that today is in superstition. There are Superstitious Christians. And generally speaking, I've seen this across the spectrum of denominations. There are those who cloak themselves in spirituality, they have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. They would rather try to manipulate God to get their own way. They would be looking for some kind of sign or symbol in order to elevate their own spirituality to make themselves look good to get what they want. 
As one Christian rapper mockingly says in one of his songs, remember that time I saw that leaf fall? I was positive it was God's call. How many people out there are looking for that leaf to fall and they read into that and they say, look at how spiritual I am. We don't need those signs and symbols. We have the word of God. And let's put it to the acid test. If someone were to ask you how you are growing in Jesus Christ, what do you point to? Do you point to some signs or some symbols or do you point to God's word that's getting in my life, it's changing me, it's renewing me, it's making me somebody different? This is where I grow. This is where I know God. This is how he reveals himself to me. And yet, people can even use God's word to try to manipulate him. They love to go to that verse where it says that the Lord will give you the desires of your heart. You ever heard someone use that verse? God will not give you the desires of your heart if the desires of your heart are selfish and sinful. (laughs) He will not give you the desires of your heart if they are against him and against his ways. He gives the desires of the heart because God does some work inside of us so that our desires begin to align with his desire. Because when he works in our heart, it removes all selfish and ungodly desires and replaces in our heart a greater desire for him. There are things in your life, desires in your life, things that you want, that you say, I don't know how I'm going to break this desire. It seems so strong. It has this hold on me, this grip on me. It feels like that desire is so powerful. How do you get rid of it? How do you overcome it? Lord, release me from the power that this desire has in my life. The problem is not the power of that desire. The problem is with your desire for Christ. If your desire for Christ is greater, there's an expulsion of all those ungodly desires. Those who are superstitious are not touting faith, they are touting anti-faith. And it was the same, it's the same with the next verse as well. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Why would someone ever do such an abominable thing? It was a practice done by the pagan cultures around Israel to try to produce fertility. So they would do this kind of act to think that it would make them fertile. Again, trying to manipulate God or the gods. It wasn't for his glory. And it calls into question morality. Pagan sacrifices, whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord, 
shall be devoted to destruction. Here again, pagan sacrifices were done to get noticed, to get to control the gods. They were done to get what you want. Think about the prophets of Baal and Elijah. What did the prophets of Baal do? They were there around the altar calling out to Baal and they began to cut themselves trying to get Baal to notice them. The greater offense in these verses is the attempts to substitute something in the place of the saving practices of Yahweh's covenant. Yahweh came to them and said, I have saved you. I've brought you out of Egypt. I care for you. Now you will worship me. And me alone. Why were they to worship God and God alone? Because he is worthy. I wonder how many of the problems that you experience in life are they because you have a worship problem? The problem is that we set our allegiance upon many other things, upon many other people, than upon having our allegiance be to Christ and to Christ alone. This is why Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. What are you doing when you do that? You are denouncing all other lords. There is no other Lord. Jesus Christ is the Lord. He is the one that I will follow, Him and Him alone. He is the one I will worship. He was the one that I will be devoted to, the one that I will follow, the one that I will give my life for. He is the Lord, and so we worship Him and exalt His name because He is worthy. Number two, extend compassion because He is compassionate. Extend compassion because He is compassionate. Our next section, verses 18 through 27, focus on the vulnerable, on the innocent. He directs our attention to the widows, the fatherless, and the poor. And he warns his people not to mistreat them. Do not afflict them or oppress them. These are the ones who have no one to defend them. No one to protect them. But the Lord will defend them. He will protect them. The widows, the fatherless, will do what the Israelites did when they were oppressed in Egypt if they are afflicted. Do you see that there? What will they do? They will cry out. 23, if you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. God will come to their rescue. And to show how seriously he takes their protection He says, if you oppress them, I will come to you and my wrath will burn against you and I will kill you with the sword and your wives will become widows and your children will become fatherless. I will do to you what's happened to them. God loves those who are downtrodden those who have no one, those who have been brought low by their state. 
Who is the Lord near? He's near the brokenhearted. Even James reinforces this when he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The Lord protects the poor from extortion. The Lord protects the poor from being taken advantage of. In fact, here the Lord says, if this is your fellow countryman, you can't exact interest from him. You're not going to be like a money lender of the other nations out there. You're going to lend without interest. Even if your neighbor should give you his cloak in his pledge. So if your neighbor comes to you and owes you something and says, here, take my cloak as a pledge until I'm able to pay you. They were not to keep that cloak overnight. Why? That cloak is like their bedding. It's like their blanket. How else are they going to stay warm at night? That's their cloak, and so they were to return it even before they slept. How they were to care for the poor, for the down and out, not to take advantage of them, not to hold even what they owed them over their head. And again, what does the Lord say there at the end of verse 27? And if he cries to me, I will hear why, for I am compassionate. Our God is the God of compassion. What does it mean for the Lord to be compassionate? Are you compassionate? How do you know? How do you know that you're compassionate? Well, I know I'm compassionate because I feel compassionate. This is often where our compassion ends. I feel compassion. I feel sorry for these people that are in this place. When we see someone in need, we feel for them. But praise the Lord that God does not merely feel compassion. His compassion is expressed in that he takes the necessary steps to relieve people of their distress. The Lord did not just feel for the Israelites in Egypt and then leave them there. The Lord does not just feel something for the widow, for the orphan, or for the poor and then do nothing for them. God does what is necessary to care for those who are down and out and so show his compassion towards them. Jesus Christ, when he crossed the Sea of Galilee and came across to the other shore in Mark 6:34, we see this. It says, "He saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd." Then what does Jesus do? He teaches them. He miraculously feeds them as a demonstration of how he is ultimately going to relieve them from their greatest predicament of being enslaved to sin. He is going to give of his own self and they will feed on him. 
Just as such meager rations fed the multitudes, so the one man, Jesus Christ, would come to feed the many and save them through his own sacrifice. Jesus is the embodiment of compassion. We were the sheep with no shepherd. We were those without God who had no hope in the world. We were those who were blinded by the God of this world. We were those who were dead in our trespasses and in our sin. But Jesus didn't just feel sorry for us. He gave of himself for us. He died on the cross to bear the penalty that we deserve for our sin. He reconciled us to God. He brought forgiveness and eternal redemption. What abounding compassion we know because of the gospel. And would we refuse to be compassionate? Would we say, it's only enough for me to feel compassion without really doing anything? Or do we do what we do simply to assuage our compassionate feeling. Like, I feel really bad, so I feel like I should do something, so I do something, and now I feel better about myself. Being compassionate means sacrificing yourself. That's what God did. That's what we do. Number three, pursue holiness because he is holy. Pursue holiness because he is holy. If you notice, there are five points in this sermon. Maybe you thought that we would get through them all. I had hopes. But here is the middle point. The middle point, and just as in the text, I think this middle point serves to be an important point. It's in the middle for a reason. Because it's upholding everything else around it. It's at the heart of what is being said. So let's look at these verses here. 28 through 31 you shall not revile God or blaspheme God. It means to disrespect or to make light of God. It speaks of those activities that would disregard God or dishonor God or treat Him with contempt. And this is also seen with Israel if they were to curse their leaders whom God had put in place. Even as the Lord said to the prophet Samuel, they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. That's the problem. Rejecting God. Rejecting what he says, rejecting his commands. It is expressed in not giving the Lord what is rightfully his. That's why the Lord goes on to say, you shall offer the fullness of your harvest from the outflow of your presses. 
all that I give to you, you shall give back to me a portion of that in return. You shall show just how devoted and dedicated you are to me. You will give me the first fruits. You will give me the firstborn. And then we get to the heart of it all. The positive command. We've been hearing so much, you shall not, you shall not, you shall not, you shall not. But now what does the Lord say? You shall. You shall be consecrated to me. You are to be set apart for the Lord. You are to be pure. The Lord says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Dear brother and sister, right here is a major question, a major dilemma, a problem. God's people are a people who are willing to pursue holiness. They desire to be holy as God is holy. What about those who do not desire to be holy? What about those who don't care about holiness? What about those in whom holiness plays little concern in their life? Does it really matter if you are holy? Isn't holiness for super spiritual people? Isn't holiness just for those who are really radical or zealous? This is a dilemma because in Christ's church, there is no place for those who are not consecrated to God. Yet how many might despise the thought of being consecrated to God? The thought of having to be completely devoted to him is detestable in their minds. And holiness isn't something that you catch. We can't come here on Sunday morning and we can't sit around one another and hope that somehow we catch other people's holiness. You have to fight for holiness. You have to fight against your sinful flesh. You have to fight against the world. And you have to fight against Satan himself. All of those would want to keep you from being holy. Holiness is a fight, it's a struggle till the bitter end. Fighting for holiness means you cannot be apathetic. It means you cannot be indifferent. It means you cannot be lazy or sluggish. It means you can't just wish for the best. You have to pursue holiness. 
You have to fight for it in your life. And those who cannot be bothered to be holy, oftentimes it's because they cannot be inconvenienced. They cannot truly be committed. They cannot really be what they should be as Christ calls them to be holy. But is that too judgmental? Is it too legalistic? Is it too demoralizing? Is it too difficult? Is it too unloving? Does it really matter if you're consecrated to the Lord or not? Being consecrated isn't convenient. It's demanding upon our souls and upon our lives. And being consecrated to God is the biggest need in the church today. And how many people would want to pretend that it's okay if you're not consecrated? Francis Schaeffer saw this problem decades ago. And he said this. There are no little people and no big people in the true spiritual sense, but only consecrated and unconsecrated people. The problem for each of us is applying this truth to ourselves. Is Francis Schaeffer the Francis Schaeffer of God? Would we do well to hear that warning? There are no little people, there are no big people in the true spiritual sense. There are only consecrated people and unconsecrated people. There's no middle ground. Would you ask yourself that question this morning? You put in your name there. Is Tyler Saltzy the Tyler Saltzy of God. Are you consecrated to God? Will you pursue holiness because you are His? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word this morning. We ask that we would be those who are consecrated to the Lord. And we realize the only way that anyone can ever be consecrated is because they have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Because they want to follow him. Because they belong to him because they are His. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who does not know Jesus Christ, that today would be the day that they would trust Him, that they would turn from their sin, that they would join in this fight. And that they would find peace for their souls. 
while we fight for holiness, we fight as those who have peace. We fight as those who have hope. We fight as those who overcome. And we overcome because our Savior Jesus Christ has overcome sin, death, and the grave. Father, we thank you that Jesus is alive. And may we continue to live as salt of the earth, following him. We pray this in his name. Amen.